Hello and good day, eh? Welcome to the Super Good Camping Podcast. My name is Pamela. I'm Tim. And we are from supergoodcamping.com. We are here because we're on a mission to inspire other families to enjoy camping adventures such as we have with our kids. Today's guest is an absolute icon of the Canadian outdoors. Some highlights about him are that he is a conservationist, author, artist, explorer, naturalist, too many words to describe, cartographer, photographer, canoe tripper, a member of the Royal Canadian Geographical Society, and an international fellow of the Explorers Club. He created Eco Trail Builders and Cabin Falls Eco Lodge, which we'll only like to touch on today because there is so much to this gentleman that we're going to try to twist his arm and get him back for another episode down the road. Please welcome Mr. Hap Wilson. Welcome to the welcome to the podcast. Hey, my pleasure. Thank you uh, for inviting me. Oh, thanks for coming. Yeah, thanks for coming. <laughs> you, You've been on the bucket list for a while. You have. You have. Yeah. All right, I'm going to quickly touch on a couple couple of things before we get deeply into it. You've written a whack of books, and I think I think when I looked at it, it was with first, second, third editions, depending on how you it was. It, I did it tally out at like 23. Does that sound about right? The what number of books or yeah. editions? Well, well, including including editions. Um, yeah, it's hard to you know. I've lost count. I, I have 14 books, but I've written. Uh, uh, co-authored several other books, probably about eight to ten other books, um, with uh, you know stories or illustrations in. So it's just you know it's fourteen books of my own, and uh, I've always got three or four on the go. So <laughs> that's good. Amazing. Well, at some point, I'm sure I'm going to be tired and say, "But where do you get the energy, man? Like and you the do time. so many things." It's it's not the energy so much as it is the time. <laughs> right. It's incredible. Yeah. Okay. So let, let's talk about your, you're, you're a conservationist. The, the two, the, the two things when I, when I was researching, I, I've known about you for a considerable amount of time, just because I'm a lunatic and I watch all the backcountry stuff and uh, you know, whether through YouTube, Instagram, reading articles, watching other people talk about you, the two things that came to mind, Oh, I'm going to have to look at my notes now. Uh, Echo trail builders and earth roots. So talk to me about echo trail builders. That like, that sounds like a cool thing. You're trying to do minimal impact. Yeah. Eco trail builders. Uh, it's a sustainable build uh, trail building company that uh, my wife and I formed uh, several years ago. I actually started building sustainable trails when I was a park ranger in Tomogamy and the first uh, trail we built on Tomogamy Island um, kind of kicked off the whole notion of building trails in a different way, utilizing, you know, 20 different sciences. And, you know, this it's a soft approach to kind of surgically placing trails. So you don't do a lot of excavating and, you know, everything's done mostly by hand tools. So it's, you know, and you, if you look at the, the you know, the science today, um, we don't know a lot of, of, uh, of the science involved in that connectivity with the forest mat. And the, you know, a lot of trail building companies are, are basically, you know, contracting uh, the landscapers. So they, you know, they do everything pretty much with excavators. And uh, so it's, and it's yep. you know, these are, these are much wider trails. And, uh, you know, they have, there's a purpose for them to putting in certain trails, but, you know, our company is, bases everything on sort of an ecological integrity and uh, use of um, soft products and, uh, you know, right down to the lubrication in our chainsaws. It's it's all bio uh, um, oils and uh, 
and and wood is from you know if we use utilize wood products they're either from on site um that we can salvage or they're from you know managed forests wow that's great i hadn't even thought about the uh the oil on the chainsaws so, yeah, yeah. We're, we're working in close to water systems and in marshes and that building boardwalks and bridges and that. So, you know, and that's chainsaws spray a lot of oil. So, you know, we try to be as careful as we can because that spray will get in, you know, it does get onto the ground and in the water and, you know, and, and it's, you know, and it's a caustic uh, substance, you know, which is not good for the environment. So, you know, we've, for years, we've used a biodegradable oil product so it's you know it doesn't harm the environment this is one of the one of the products that we you know that kind of labels this as you know <clears throat> a, a softer approach to uh sustainable you know trail building and uh and to just care for the environment oh it's excellent uh, like take all the boxes that's to to think it through i it would, totally wouldn't occur to me because i'm an idiot but so the, the the trail building will try to follow the lay of the land. It will try to follow where animals have not truly already made yeah, a trail. It's it's, yeah, it's like you can probably notice in, on my nose. I've got a, a bit of a cut on my nose from today. We're you know I put a trail in for a um, not for for a client not too far from our home here in North Muskoka towards Perry Sound and uh, and I actually utilize a deer trail that uh, you know they they either tend to. Um, go follow high crests uh the, the crest of hills just so they you know they can hear uh, predators easier they can visually they can see you know what's approaching and uh and i went there today to finish that one of that those trails and and uh you know i'm just finishing uh, flagging it out for uh um finishing this week so it's uh but yeah we utilize uh um you know we we do a lot of transects walking properties uh um trying to find uh sensitive features uh you know if if we see for example eagle nest we'll you know, stay clear of of uh of that and uh um sensitive uh, vegetation um and also you know um aesthetic features like erratics boulders rock cuts um um all interesting features old growth pine old growth uh hemlock any old tree any old tree stands um so we, we kind of map that out and uh, kind of join the dots and, and make an interesting trail. You know, we're we're you know our our species we're basically linear thinkers, but trail builder trail build building or trail builders aren't linear think, thinkers at all. So and it helps to have an artistic uh, background too. So we can, uh, you know, our trails are surgically put in, uh, and uh, you know we like to, uh, um, you know. Inventory, all of the the more interesting things on a private property, where, whether we're doing it for, you know, private property or community, um, government, whatever trails we put in, um, yeah. Can you sorry d d define s surgically? Like, what's the how how do you you're trying to do as little damage to anything else around it? Is that how that plays? That's right. Yes, that's you know we. Uh, um, and one thing you know different types of trails demand different procedures so but it's all it all depends on water water is our, you know one of our big biggest issues uh, building a trail and you know we avoid fall line trails and a lot of trails are bench cuts cut in the sides of the hills but they have to be a certain you know a certain angle to to be able to shed water and again you know like i said there's there's so many different sciences involved in you know in laying out a, a proper trail and uh um, you know the techniques are 
much different for as you, as you know you mentioned the word surgical i like that word because it's done with a lot of care and precaution and we only take out as much as as we need to we don't cut trees down um you know we can with the backcountry hiking trail for example you can basically put a trail anywhere you want so we can wind in and around the forest trees and boulders um a lot easier than than you know trying to push through with a with a uh, an excavator you know cutting up the the earth and and pushing things out of the way um nordic trails demand wider trails and you know specific um you know grades and corners a lot more work uh winter trails um don't as much worry about about drainage wa water issues because everything's covered in ice and snow uh, mountain bike trails different again and that that takes the most care and it's the most expensive to put in because usually you have to have if you don't have mineral soil for a base then then you know you sometimes you have to add um some kind of hard pack over top of the uh, uh the ground mat but uh, and they you know and you get, again like Nordic trails you have to you know be careful of the uh, the although mountain bikers like steep pitches that you know that's that's a given um, but they also have to have uh, for each um, you know specific um, I guess uh, placement of a of a, an obstacle or something you you need an easy out so you know so it's less technical so there's a lot of things to think about. Safety for one, and uh, uh, liability for another one. Another one is the big thing with uh, um, with trail building, and, and a lot of people, um, um, for a lot of people, don't understand how a trail gets there. I think we did. You know, I attended a um, professional trail building uh, convention in uh, Vol Place, Reno, Nevada, and uh, right upstairs from all the uh, one armed bandits and the, and the roulette wheels. <laughs> and uh, I was in a room full of. Uh, <laughs> My room, we we're full of trail builders and you know, all suspender wearing, uh, bearded you know, old hippies and, uh, you know, talking trails. So it was, uh, but I did learn a lot, of, a lot from that, uh, from a larger, broader uh, family of trail builders that, uh, you know, they, one of the um, startling statistics is that most people don't know how trails get there. Like over 90% of people think trails just happen. Just magic, and, uh, and they don't, and they there. There's so much work involved, and I I was lucky. I was a, a guest park warden in uh, New Zealand, looking after some trails on the, the South Island for a while. I I got to do some trail work there and studied um, probably one of the best, most popular trail systems in the world in New Zealand, and uh, brought that back to what we do here in Ontario and other places, and. Uh, you know, my wife, Andrea, and I have gone to England, Scotland, Ireland, the East Coast, Acadia, um, down through the States, uh, South Carolina, um, Arizona, um, just studying um, how trails are built um, and uh, different procedures. And, you know, it really helps gain an understanding of the the history of trail building. And uh, that also extends to water trails. And that's you know, one of the things that uh, um, and people don't understand is that water trails are actually very first trails that we that we you know that we can appreciate in Canada. You know, all these uh, waterways uh, and connecting routes across the country were used by indigenous peoples. You know, long before we got here. And uh, interestingly enough, when I was asked to do uh, the Path of the Paddle. Um, that 1,200-kilometer uh, stretch of uh, Trans-Canada Trail water trail from Lake Superior to Manitoba, 
I was uh, astounded that uh, Trans-Canada Trail people didn't acknowledge our Indigenous water trails until they figured that, well, we can't build a land-based trail across Northwest Ontario. Um, you know, there, there's, and that's funny, uh, it's not funny, but it's it's just one of those realities about our geography and uh, the difficulty of the terrain. And you look at the railroad had so much difficulty going through the, the, the mountains. The second hardest place to cross or build a railroad was Northwest Ontario. So these guys are sitting on a barn and, and uh, created uh, the idea of uh, uh, the notion of a cross Canada land trail. Um, you know, after a few beers, everything looks good. So, <laughs> and uh, when they hit, uh, you know, Northwest Ontario, they said, well, it's going to be more, it's way too expensive and almost impossible to maintain. And so let's, Let's ask ask Hap Wilson if he can map out a uh, you know a route from from Lake Superior to Manitoba and make that connection a water trail. But I didn't I didn't think that much about Trans Canada Trail because it re- actually repurposes a lot of re- old rail lines and, and it's used by you know high impact uh, recreationalists, uh, ATV and snowmobiles. It's not really a traditional pathway or or hiking trail, yep. um, so to speak. So water trails, I was ecstatic when they asked me to map that out and i said this is great and then uh, they said well it's only 500 kilometers i said wait a minute that's like as the crow flies from thunder bay to the border of manitoba you're telling me that a water trail is going to be 500 kilometers well in the end it turned out to be 1250 kilometers because <laughs> you know we it are linear like thinkers and uh, <laughs> you know when you're mapping out a water trail there are no straight lines in, in Mother Nature, especially yeah. when, uh, when you know. And it was interesting because uh, um, the criteria for, you know, mapping out this quintessential, quintessential canoe route, uh, water trail, um, had to connect, sort of connect difficult dots, um, you know, trying to connect the communities, um, connect as many indigenous communities as well, avoid... Um, some of the disturbances, and there are a lot of disturbances in Northwest Ontario as there is across this country, logging, mining, road building, all that kind of stuff. So when you're designing a, a quintessential canoe route, um, yeah, it had to be, be you know, cognizant of all of these things. And, uh, and you know, over the years, it took probably three three years or more to do the field research, um, many, many trips up to, up to Northwest Ontario. And uh, you know, my um, our kids were involved in some of the some of the routes that we mapped out. My wife certainly spent a lot of time in the canoe with me, and uh, and I did a lot of solo trips. So it was a long time in the field, and then a long time in the studio doing the guidebook for that uh, specific project. So there you go. There's the trails. That's my trail <laughs> cool. history. But, so it, it, the 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 realities of doing it, like so, you're you're out there. You're you must. I have to assume you're you're racking up things in your head and then taking copious notes when when you pause for the day, and then you have to come back and and compile all of that, turn it into turn it into into a more cohesive notes. I know when I'm writing my my notes when we're on a trip, it I come back and it's just a jumble of 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 bullet points and and things like that, and then occasionally I wax poetic, but but that was because I had a couple of beers. And then, and then, and then, and then how do you, so, so then you're cartography, like you're turning it into a, a map as well. How does that, 
how do you are you measuring you must be measuring things taking you know notes about directions all that sort of jazz along the way i obviously i'm not going to you're not going to turn me into a cartographer by the time we're done this but but i'm just i'm curious how that how that how that reality is like how that the plays process. out to, yeah the process of making that all happen well it's a blend of uh, you know old school map making and and modern technology and uh, you know we've come a long way and and i've seen it all in my in the his, my own evolution of of uh, ideology when it comes to you know backcountry travel that's uh, changed so much you know initially my guidebooks were all done just using um available topographic maps but the, but the thing about all my guidebooks and any of those projects i go way back to the first maps that were ever made and some you know some of these were you know they, they date back to the 16 1700s and i get an idea of some of the older routes that you know the voyagers may have taken based on what they learned from First Nations and because First Nations were their go-to people to, to, to find these routes. And uh, that kind of helped me. I do a lot of background research, what's available, um, not a lot available for most of the books that I, you know, guidebooks that I that I used. But, you know, then, then along came technology where I would look at a topographic map and guess, well, this creek looks navigable, maybe. And you look at the topographic, uh, you know, the contour lines and the, and the uh, the gradient on, on some of these rivers, and you're kind of guessing at, as to the water flow and some of these small rivers and creeks, and you're trying to, you know, join the lakes together with, uh, you know, just using primitive information, really. You know, some of our topo maps in, in the northern part of our country have, haven't been updated since the 1950s, 60s, maybe. And, uh, you know, you'd go in the field, you'd be paddling along a creek or something, you know, trying to find a route through. And, and then you just get bogged down in, in swamp and, and tag alder. And then, and then you find that this is not a, a, a good route to take. So now when I'm mapping out, uh, we've got Google Earth and I love it. You know, <laughs> we can we can zoom right down on a, on a small creek system and see get right down and see well there's snags across there and there's there's boulders boulder gardens and you can see the configuration of rapids before you even get there so you get a good um a good feel for you know what lies ahead instead of just guesswork so it's making my job as an explorer and map maker a lot easier but you know on, in still in the field when i'm sitting on the side of a rapids i'll you know i'll walk i'll portage walk up and down and and uh and you know we'll we'll run the rapids or line them down and and then take a look at uh, well um you know we look at the high water marks portage entry points exit points because they're usually in a, in a fairly more popular river you'll find high water landings and low water landings so you know these all have to be uh you know drawn into your field sketches so and, and that, all that stuff is compiled with notes on vegetation and then compile out with with historical um, information and indigenous information, cultural information, stories, um, myths, all that kind of stuff. That's the studio work. I come back home and I'm sitting in my studio, but I'm retracing those very trips again in my mind. And I'm, you know, it's almost like being there again for me, drawing all of these these maps, you know, detail maps. And I, I really like, you know, the, the style of, of, of maps you know because if nobody else is really doing it everybody's going to the you know the digital format and there's way too much information on them way too much 
And they're too small. They try to cram all that information on a map and, and people are getting into, into a bit of difficulty, especially up in Tomogamy, where um, people have been using maps for other areas like Algonquin Park, for example. And and so they, you know, there's probably four um, available maps now, large scale maps for Tomogamy. And, but it just gives the, the distance. It doesn't give you any, inform any information on the map at all. So people come up from Al Algonquin or, or other places where parks are well tended, portages are wide, fairly easy. They get to Tomogamy and they say, oh, the portages, look how short they are, like 150 meters. Wow, this, this is great. And they get there and they say, wow, this is insane <laughs> stuff. And people turn back. People have been turning back and they get up to North Channel Lady Ellen and they get up to the Center Falls and you know, my bridge has been taken out for years now and, and uh, people have to, to scale this cliff to, to get up there. And, and it's ledgy, it's rocky, it's slippery. It's, it's, uh, and people are cursing all the way. So this isn't like Algonquin Park at all. So, and that, and they're just using a map and a lot of these maps aren't accurate. Um, so I tell people, look, you know, I spent years, most of the maps are using my information that I, you know, I went out back in the 1970s and, and, you know, cataloged all these uh, old Nostogan routes, you know, in, in order to protect them. There's another thing about the guidebooks that people don't understand too, is that they were done initially and uh, purposely to protect the uh, the backcountry uh, routes. And, you know, Tomogamy was my first, you know, my first book. I got, this is the, one of the original copies. You might, might have seen that around somewhere. And it's, you know, this, this was the... Uh, um, you know, it had 150 typo errors, but you know, we sold 500, 5,000 copies the first year it came out. That's awesome. And now it's on, you know, and now it's going into its uh, 12th edition. I don't, I've sold out of books, but um, temporarily I don't have any stock, but that's the new book, the uh, third, third edition from Firefly and uh, 12th printing. That's sweet. But uh, Tomogamy, um, yeah, that's, uh, uh, and all the guidebooks that I've done had a, uh, a different uh had a very strong environmental nub to them and that was to protect the uh, watersheds primarily um from um that advancement of of logging mining road building all of that a lot of these areas don't didn't have protection and uh you know it's great that you know canoeists use them they're a value valuable resource for 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 canoeists that you know it makes the, the trip a little bit safer and uh so it's kind of a um it was a double purpose to to, to the books but primarily it was the all my books were done to try to protect some of these watersheds from uh um, industrial uh um invasion i guess i i we, we could go off and, and we could talk about the abuse of nature that our government is currently doing but I, I still see things about what, what certainly whether like, there, uh, don't hold me to it. It's something crazy. Like 70% of Algonquin is still open to logging uh, and they, they are still doing logging. Uh, it, 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 that's specific to Algonquin, but, but I understand that it's happening in, in, in a number of other places like Tomogamy. And, and if I'm not mistaken, I'm sure I read an article about, about they, they somebody was caught because it was illegal logging. Like they weren't, they weren't even coming close to what they're supposed to be doing. Is this a, is this a happens all the time kind of thing? Like is, do I, 
do you, do you do you spot this sort of stuff? Well, it's interesting. You think that, that you know we're in an age of accountability, and um, yeah, I'd like to believe that that we've made headway with regards to responsible logging and responsible managing. Um, it's really hard. You know, this was uh, this is not just you know Ontario Algonquin Park, you know Northeast Ontario thing. This is this is province wide. It's it's Canada wide. Well, you it's know, kind of, kind of global. There is, I could I could ramble on about about the politics of wilderness and and you'd you know and a lot of people would be amazed at and disappointed at how you know our resources are are mismanaged and we look at you know the East Coast fisheries both you know the Atlantic and the Pacific and how good a job we've done with that and you know it was you know coming out of the fifties and sixties it was you know we just figured that well Canada is an inexhaustible resource for all of these things and and you know there was no long term vision and no long term planning we didn't even have um, it was our environment group Earthroots um, Tomogamy Wilderness Society at the beginning who embarrassed the government into recognizing old growth forest that did exist in the province of Ontario and. Uh, you know, the, the logging practices um, have changed drastically, as, you know, most people, you know, realize that uh, they were still using horses in the 1960s to draw out, you know, select cut uh, uh, timber from from the bush. And, and you know, now, you know, they, since the 1970s, um, it's, it, it's industrialization of the forest is, uh, and technology has, um change the scope of logging you know that we we didn't have clear cuts um way back with it, it was more um high grading of, of the species that they required that they needed uh, at the time except for you know clearing farmland that there was <laughs> i guess that was our original you know clear cut clear yep. for, for survival purposes for you know you know building that agricultural base that we needed to survive as a, as a country um but we didn't understand, you know, what is an old growth forest and, and that it takes centuries to um, replicate an old growth forest. And this is, you know, what's what's happening now in uh, not just in the pine lands of you know, central Ontario, but uh, we're looking at the boreal forest now with, uh, you know, the approach to, um, you know, cutting large swaths of, you know, spruce for pulp mills and, and et cetera. I've seen it. I've seen that. You know, I helped a friend do a study on on the boreal owl um, years ago up in uh, Opasatica and and Kapuskasing area. We stayed at an old logging camp and uh, um, was amazed. We were amazed at over a two year period how much forest it did as far as the eye could see. And they were cutting, you know, spruce trees down maybe six inches, six six to eight inches thick that were up to two hundred years old, and that it was all going to. Spruce Falls Pulp and Power Company for, two, you know, and they fed um, two companies in the United States. They all went to the United States, Kimberly Clark, um, you know, for Kleenex and toilet paper and yep. New York Times. So all of this disposable product, you know, coming from our boreal forest and it's still happening. So it's, you know, and that's that's our our biggest, uh, uh, one of our biggest concerns now is, is that the boreal forest is, you know, our respirator. It's our it's our livelihood on this planet so it's uh um you know that's one of the you know our biggest i think um, i'd say forest concerns at, at you know in the long term are you seeing a change in wildlife based on loss of habitat 
Um, yes, big time. I mean, you look at uh, a good example is the Woodland Caribou. Uh, it's a wilderness park on the on the border of Manitoba, and Manitoba Atikiki uh, Wilderness Park adjoins it, and you know, cut right through the middle with the political boundary. So each park is managed differently. You know, back in the indigenous days, there was no such thing as fences and, and political boundaries, and you know, and districts and and things, and 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 you you can't really manage like. And it's insane because it, when you think about it, that the river systems that flow into Lake Winnipeg in Manitoba, all you know, a lot of those major rivers are are sourced in Ontario. And uh, of course, you know, you manage you manage those headwater systems differently in in one province. It's going to affect everything downstream. Boundary boundaries are arbitrary. I worked on the Tomogamy Wilderness Park boundary for months, and they you know they threw it in the garbage because it took too much. It was four times the size as it is now. And it took too much of the timber resource away from logging companies, so they they trashed it. And then you know, since that that park was established, they've added on conservation reserves and waterway parks. But they left big donut holes where they're just you know, rip roaring through with their you know with their logging practices. And um, it, it's really a shame that it should have been parkland years ago, right from the beginning. Um, Woodland Caribou and what you know, Woodland Caribou Wilderness Park, you know, it was. Uh, some of the best feeding grounds for woodland caribou um, were just outside the boundaries, and, and that's they they log right to that political boundary of the park, and it doesn't make any sense. So park you know park systems are usually arbitrary boundaries, just based on on resource extraction, not on good science or or the care for you know, indig- or indigenous species, you know, whether whether it's First Nations or whether it's our wildlife, and it's bad. The landscape and the political landscape in Ontario is just terrible because they've they've changed the, the endangered species act and, and the, the environmental assessment act and made it really difficult for conservation and environment groups to you know get in make any ground and make any any uh, um headway they've you know this government's knocked us back three probably three decades in the environmental movement yeah uh, you're gonna get no argument from me there i'm uh i'm i'm terribly disappointed with with the direction that that they're going, which is so backwards. But when you look at the green belt, you know that's a good example of of the mentality of, of this. Uh, <laughs> so it's, I mean, he looks at uh, you know how can we make some money? You know, where can we build more houses? And uh, we need more houses instead of green belts. You know, and and uh, I, and he looks at the park systems. You know, we don't have enough parks for people to, to go to, and and. Uh, and a lot of them are overmanaged and overpriced. You know, camping, canoe camping, backcountry travel used to be affordable for everybody. Now it's, it's not. the same as front country. Like it's crazy. Mm-hmm. And you can, but, but that's fine because you can put nine people on your site. I don't want nine people with me in the backcountry. That's kind of the point, man. So appreciate. Well, well, I appreciate like programs like yours are great because it gets the gets the message out, and uh, I think that's the important thing. So. Honestly, that's what we're hoping to do. That's appreciate the work that you sort of are. Thank you so much to our special guest, Hap Wilson, for joining us today. Please do reach out to him. His website is hapwilson.com and Google him. You will find him everywhere. But please do reach out to him. He's just 
amazing. Check out his books. The guidebooks are awesome. The artwork in the guidebooks is awesome and all done by Hap Wilson. Um, we so appreciate him joining us today. Uh, anyways, that's it for us for today. We will talk to you again soon. I'm Pamela. I'm still Tim. And we are from supergoodcamping.com. Please do reach out to us on all the social media and our website is supergoodcamping.com. And all of our connections are there if you want to find us there. Uh, we do also have a YouTube channel. We'd love it if you subscribe to us on YouTube. Talk to you again soon. Bye. Bye.